This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, November 5th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Brothers and sisters, today's scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that you need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. Y'all can have a seat. Good morning. It is a Seahawks game. It is Daylight Savings Day, and everyone is here. That is amazing. Not that it matters anymore because our phones just change on us, and we don't even know that it's Daylight Savings anymore. But 10 years ago, everyone slept in. Um, Good morning. My name's Andrew. I'm the uh, pastor of discipleship here for Restoration Road Church. If you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, to the words written by the Apostle Paul, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 1, and we'll go to verse 10 today. Please join me in prayer. King Jesus, this is your day, and I pray your blessing on this assembly and on Restoration Road Church. I ask that you would take what you've already done to make us a gospel epicenter, a people by which the gospel sounds forth from, and you would intensify and you would increase that. I pray that as we come to 1 Thessalonians, we'd understand that these people believed the same gospel we believe. They're empowered by the same Holy Spirit we're empowered by, uh, and that they worship you, Jesus, just like we worship you, Jesus. You did something special in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, and I pray that this church would serve as a case study for us of what it means for us to have the Gospel sound forth from Snohomish and into Snohomish County and into the ends of the earth. But we can only do that with Your help, Jesus. We need You so desperately, Lord. Change us. Mold us. Shape us. Make us more like Yourself. Reveal our sin. Give us great faith and great strength in the Spirit to make much of Your name with our whole lives. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects, and pray You would help us to go forth here for Your glory and that when we gather as Your people and as we scatter as Your people, that we would be a people that the the Gospel of Jesus sounds forth from. We love You, Jesus, and pray these things for Your glory and for our joy. In Your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so we're in 1 Thessalonians starting in chapter 1. Uh, Pastor Sam was so great to set it up from Acts last week. Uh, and here we are in 1 Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica. Um, the great uh, guitar player, college rock musician, uh, Doug Mache from the band Built to Spill, who is not a Christian, by the way, says wrong things about Christianity often, uh, but made this observation uh, that your God is whoever you perform for. And he was absolutely right. Where we find places that people in our context 
have some access to some spiritual truth, uh, it is a great thing for us to observe and pay attention to the things that they say. I would agree with him that your God is what, whoever you perform for, and I would add, whatever you perform for. And in a sense, he's addressing what we would call idolatry. The love of something. The thing that is the center of your life. And as Christian people, the center of our life is Jesus Christ. But if we are not careful, we can supplant Jesus and put something else uh, in His place. Because the reality is that as we turn to God, we understand that God is the God to be worshipped. Because He's the one who made absolutely everything. He made absolutely everything good. He is the one that has moved in the world. He is the one that is deserved of our praise and our adoration. He is the one that not only when our first parents said, no, we're not going to worship you, we're going to go our own way, He made a promise to send Jesus to come and fix what we ultimately broke. Because if you're in here today and you're a Christian, you know that you're a person who apart from Christ is good at messing up your life. It is likely that if you are in here today and you are not a Christian, you might understand that many of the problems in your own life, when you're being honest with yourself in a moment of clarity, are your own doing. That, that we are very good at messing up our own lives. Now, God is very good at fixing what we mess up. He made a promise to send the Lord Jesus Christ to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve, to raise from the dead, and to save sinners from death to life. And this is what Jesus done, has done, and this is how He operates. And because He is who He is, because He's the one who made everything, and He's the one that's fixed our own lives and, and made us right with Him, He's the one that should be at the center of everything we do. If you have had an encounter with this wonderful God who has saved you and moved in your life and spoken to you and is with you now, does He not deserve the right place in the center of our lives? He does. That's the story of God. The story of idolatry is unfortunately we take the things that this God made and we put that thing, whatever it might be, in the place that He deserves to be. At the core of idolatry is taking something, whether it's a little statue or a big statue for that matter, that we've carved and bowed down to it. And, you know, Isaiah makes this great observation. Uh, you're ridiculous. You climb up a tree. You cut down a branch. With that branch, half that branch you take and you make a little god to worship. And the other half of the branch you use to burn uh, the, the meat or whatever you're doing as a sacrifice to him. It doesn't make any sense. We take these things that are temporal and passing and put them at the center of our lives. And, and Paul today is going to turn to this church in Thessalonica and he's going to say of these people that the Gospel, the good news of Jesus, that He saves sinners from death to life, is, is sounding forth. They are an epicenter of the Gospel. The Gospel is sounding forth from this people. And it's undeniable that God is at work in their midst because of the things they are doing, the things they believe, and the way they are responding to this good news of Jesus. Because they have, at the core of his argument, taken whatever that thing is that they've made most valuable and most important in their life other than the God who made them. That thing He made, ultimately, right? They have taken their life where they were displacing that right God from him. You were shoving out of his, him out of his place where he belongs. Uh, and they stopped saying, no, Jesus, you don't belong there. And they rightly put Jesus where he belongs at the center of their lives. And he says, because they've turned from idols to Jesus, the truth of the gospel, amongst other things, but that's the crown jewel of what he's talking about, has sounded forth from this people. And so my hope as we turn to this text, because I, I hope you have the same hope that I have, and that's that Restoration Road Church would be an epicenter of the Gospel. 
that the gospel would sound forth from us as a people. That it would be undeniable that we are a people who are convinced and convicted of the power of Jesus Christ to change us. And that even if people look at us and say, those people are idiots, but they really actually believe that guy rose from the dead. Right? That might be what they say about us. I would rather they say, you're right, he did raise from the dead. But I want them to know the truth. I want them to know. I want you, if you're in here today, well, first and foremost, if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to meet this Jesus. But I want you to leave knowing that Jesus is the center of all of our lives together as the people of God. And so we're turning to the Thessalonians, which is a fun thing to say, as a case study uh, in what it looks like to be an epicenter of the Gospel. Verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Uh, This is a wonderful thing. This is a side note. But a wonderful thing to have people going to bat with Jesus for you constantly praying for you and that God would be work at you in you and that you would do the same for your brothers and sisters both here at Restoration Road Church. Please pray for the elders. Please pray for the members. Please pray for the three-strand churches that we're associated with. Please pray for the Bible-believing churches in Snohomish County in the state of Washington. Please pray for the brothers and sisters all around the world who are clinging close to Jesus. Remembering before our God and Father, listen, your work of faith and your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting about all these words, love, faith, and hope, is the words that he attaches to them here, right? Uh, I always say this, and so maybe you're getting tired of me saying it, uh, but I'm going to keep saying it. Please read your Bibles slowly. There's a lot happening uh, in that little phrase there that we need to pay attention to, particularly if you want to look to these folks in Thessalonica, and understand how the Gospel is going forth from them. So listen. For we know, for we know, brothers, oh, pardon me, up and two, your work of faith. Now, when we think of faith, we have kind of, I think, uh, in, especially in the West, in the United States, in America, we have a conception of faith that says, faith is when I believe things that aren't really true. Right? We have faith in things that we can't really see and we can't really know and I'll just, you know, I'll just have a blind faith. You've heard this phrase, blind faith. At the core of this word uh, that Paul is using here, it's not just about believing things, but trusting. Having a proven trust in things. And I would argue here, this is an active thing he is doing. Your work of faith. Your work of trust. It's active. You're actively trusting God. And I would argue in the Scriptures, Jesus, and even in the Old Testament, God rarely, if ever, says something like, just trust me on this one. He actually says things like, hey, we're going into the land. And they say, hey, uh, the land, Israel, is full of really tall guys. And if you think I'm joking, that's totally what they say. They say, God, they're really tall and I don't think we can take them. God doesn't say, well, just trust me. He says, do you remember what I did? Do you remember what I did against the hegemonic world power in Egypt? I crushed Egypt. And they're tall? Trust me. Believe me. Have faith in me. Right? We do this. Right? 
There's stuff in your life that you're like, Jesus, I, I don't know how you're going to get me out of this thing. Well, He got you out of the other 50 million things. He got you out of death. He got you out of your sin. He saved you from yourself. He saved you to life in Him. He is trustable. He is trustworthy. Now, mind you, some of it's not as tangible as we might like. But we're not God, and this is His design. And that this is a thing that we're actively trusting Him. And we look back in our life and say, look at all that Jesus has done. Look at all that He has done. He is trustworthy. But listen, it's not just this trust and this faith. And it's this labor of love. It's interesting, labor of love. Uh, we watch you know, romantic comedies, and we say, oh, it's so easy, and in 48 hours you can meet someone, they're awesome, and we get married, and it's effortless, and that's what I'm looking for in life. Okay. <laughs> and that, God does amazing things. You know, uh, you know, some of us have very short engagements, some of us have very short uh, dating periods, and we get married or whatever, and, and God does stuff, and I'm not, I don't have a problem there. Labor of love is at three in the morning when your four-year-old child comes in and wants a drink of water and you went to bed an hour before because your other child needed their Star Trek costume sewed for Halloween or whatever, right? You're tired. You've only been asleep for 58 minutes. And you look at your three- or four-year-old and you reason with them and say, listen, I have to go to work tomorrow or we're not going to eat, man. Get out of here. <laughs> That's what you want to do. It's actually a labor to love them in that moment. It's a, it's a labor to say, you know what? I'm going to die to myself because we love a lot of things. Like even when we're, as we're talking about idolatry, we love ourselves the most. We love our comfort the most. And almost any sin or any idolatry we have starts with me and what I want and the God that I look at in the mirror. That is where it mostly starts. Right now, your four-year-old is making you uncomfortable and don't you know everything I've done for you? Well, love means laying our lives down. If Jesus is the example of, us, of what love is, it's laying your life down, which means you never tell someone that you love, sorry, I don't have any more. You say, okay, I can get up and get you a drink of water, I think, hopefully. I might fall asleep on the couch as I'm trying to get there, but we'll work on it. Right? It's a labor of love. It is a work, in a sense, to love Jesus. Now listen, it's a responsive work. It's an act. It's an activity. Which changes it. It makes the burden light. It makes the yoke easy. Right? We have been saved by Jesus from all of these things. He's empowered us by His Spirit. But we still must put our mind on Him. Right? Paul all the time is going to say things like, set your minds on the things above. Who's above? Namely, Jesus. It's an act. It's an activity. It's what we're doing. But if you neglect the activity of loving those you say to love, they're going to feel neglected. Right? You haven't called your mom in five years. She doesn't feel loved. Right? Well, I love her in my heart. Well, yeah, but there's that labor. There's that response. There's that responsive thing. And so we, we labor to love Jesus, God. We labor to respond to Him. Now, mind you, that's a Spirit-empowered response to what He's already done for us. He loved us first, so we love Him. But we're still involved. These are not passive activities. They're easy when you look at Him. And steadfastness. Steadfastness in what? 
and hope. Have you ever been out of hope? There are times when we run out of hope. There are times when we don't want to hope anymore. In fact, I don't even know what you bring in here today. That might be you today. You might be say, work of love. I don't have any more work to do. Trust. I don't know what else to trust. Hope. What do I, what do I hope in? I'm, I'm out of hope. We bring back reality. We come back to reality. In the middle of Lamentations, if you'd go with me there. Lamentations chapter 3. Where are you, Lamentations? You're hiding from me. Uh Uh-oh. So what happens? Now you know my secret of preaching through verses. I put little sticky tabs in my Bible, and then when I don't have them, I say, where are you, Lamentations? And we all awkwardly sit here while you find it before me. And if I was preaching out of a pew Bible, you could call out the number, but then I just sit here and nervously fumble for Lamentations. Where are you? You're right there. Oh, no. Thank you. I appreciate that, Mark. That was Mark, wasn't it? I could hear the voice. I could hear it, and I knew. I knew someone was going to help me out. You all just sat there, by the way. This is a church. We're a family. And you sit here watching me fumble through my Bible until Mark finally helps me out. We're in Lamentations. We're in chapter 3. Yeah, that's all right. It's all right. Like that's, that's actually what, that's what the table of contents is for. And the index is really helpful in the back, too. Um, so, Lamentations. Everyone's getting exiled. Everyone's worn out of hope. Everything's going south. Everything is broken. They have been unfaithful to God and they are reaping the reward for their unfaithfulness. Now, you might not have been unfaithful, but you still might be in a situation in life where you feel like you're out of hope. Verse 19 says this, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So, hopeless. And all this person, all the... All that Jeremiah here who wrote Lamentation can remember is how hopeless his situation is and how dark everything is for him and how hard everything is. And in 21, he, has, he has, does some active hoping. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. Sometimes when things are so dark and so miserable, we need to remember that you can have absolutely everything taken away from you. And if you have Jesus, you still have absolutely everything. And I have hope. I have hope. And he continues here in Thessalonians. I apologize for the blunder, by the way. Uh, for we know, brothers, loved by God, 
What's really interesting here is that this is a really super, he's going to do a bunch of little, uh, uh, little uh, Hebrew-type phrases that he doesn't do elsewhere, but come right from the Old Testament because he's kind of trying to demonstrate this church is mostly Gentile, so people outside of the people of God are now part of the people of God and participate in with the people of God. And this phrase, loved by God, appears throughout the Old Testament, but is very sparse in the New Testament. Brothers, loved by God that He has chosen you Remember this, friends. If you are here and you love Jesus, that is because He has reached into our lives and picked you and called you and saved you. And it's not because of you, it's because of Him. It's because of His steadfastness and His grace. Because I don't know how you feel about you, but I know that if I'm picking someone for Team Awesome, I'm not the person that I pick if I'm Jesus. He didn't pick you because you belong on Team Awesome. He picked you and made you worthy of being on Team Awesome through His cross, through His blood, through His resurrection, through His cleansing work, through His empowering Holy Spirit. He has chosen you. And we have nothing to boast in because of it. Now listen. Verse 5, this word because is really important. He's saying He knows they're loved and He knows they're chosen. But how does He know this truth? Because. Because our Gospel, listen, came not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How does he know that they are bona fide believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because they heard the word preached, Jesus saved sinners, and they turned from their sin and they turned to Jesus and they had life and life in abundance. Yes, this is awesome. They believed the word. But not only that, he saw the Holy Spirit moving in their midst in power. We are supernaturalists, by the way. We believe that God does stuff is what that means. We believe that God works through His people. We believe God does miracles. We believe God is gracious and intervenes in history according to His grace and according to His purposes. We pray to a God that we know answers our prayers. That's why we pray to Him. Why else would you pray to Him? Right? When we wander from these big prayers... We become the people that believe in prayer but don't believe that God's going to do anything about it. When you pray to God, do you believe that the answer can be yes? Do, do you? Do, do you believe that God's going to move? Do you pray prayers that are so big and so impossible that they could only be God? Is there someone in your life that you've just said, you know, God's not going to save them, so I'm not going to pray for them? Functionally or out loud to yourself. Do you believe anyone is beyond the reach of the grace of the mercy of God? Because He chooses people, right? He moves. We believe God moves, so we pray. And the Holy Spirit came in power. And the same Holy Spirit indwelt them that in dwelt us? Do you pray impossible prayers? Do you believe the Spirit's going to move? Uh, do you believe in His movement in history? And with full conviction. So they believe the Word. The Spirit's moving. Things are happening in this church. Right? And with full conviction. These come together. Now this word conviction, when we think of conviction in 2018, what we often think of uh, is conviction of sin. Right? And that's not wrong. Uh, this, this word here really has a sense of being really convinced. That these are people who are really convinced. So they're people who clearly believe the Word of God. 
And, and then they believe the work of the Holy Spirit, and then they're fully convinced. And I think this is super important. Uh, we don't actually, I just hope you know this, we don't actually think we can do anything here without God. We, we don't actually think we can accomplish anything without the movement of the Spirit. Um, to be frank, I wouldn't do the job I do if I felt otherwise. Uh, something I read just about every time I preach. It's taped to the inside of my Bible. I have my own little ritual, wrong word, in this context, right? I don't think this ritual does anything other than sets my, tunes my heart like a tuning fork. Uh, but the great uh, 19th century preacher, Spurgeon, says this, and I look at this every time I get up, before I get up here, and it says this, the power that is the Gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converter of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give the power to convert the soul. That is why I stand here. Because I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's why. I'm convinced. Right? They're convinced. They really, really believe this stuff. When I was pastoring in Seattle, a guy came a few times with his wife. They were in kind of an interesting spot. We had people ministering to them. They're coming to our weird little Sunday morning gathering in a boys and girls club. And I was preaching on Hebrews regarding some very tough passages. And I said, listen, if 10 years from now you hear that Andrew Pack has wandered from the Gospel and says it's all foolishness, it's not because I am right the Gospel still stands. I believe the Gospel over myself and over my own uh, being and over my own convictions. And if you hear, and this is true today, if you hear 10 years from now that I've walked away from the Gospel, I'm wrong, not the Gospel. I'm wrong, not Jesus. Are we clear? And I mean that not as a sermon illustration. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Okay? So that guy goes to lunch with his friend who keeps bringing him. And they're sitting at the table. And this guy's just really pushing on the gospel and really thinking about the gospel. And he says, so what'd you think? He's like, I think you guys might be idiots, but I think that guy really actually believes this stuff. I think he means it. He's sincere. He had been exposed to sort of the health and wealth culture where people are peddling preaching to make money. And he realized the crazy guy in the boys and girls club in the middle of Seattle saying things that are very unpopular to Seattleites, saying that Jesus is smarter, better, and writer than he is, might actually believe what he's saying. He might actually be doing this because he's convinced that that Jesus guy rose from the dead. Uh, Whitfield has his problems, but George Whitfield was a great, uh, great preacher. Benjamin Franklin, if you don't know this, Benjamin Franklin, not a Christian at all, <laughs> whatsoever. Benjamin Franklin comes to one of his big outdoor uh, revival deals. There's thousands of people gathered. Whitfield would preach until he would spit blood. That's pretty intense, by the way. You win, Whitfield. You win. <laughs> and someone says to Ben Franklin, this is a pretty famous story, you may have heard it. Someone says to Ben Franklin, what, what are you doing here? I didn't think you believed any of this stuff. And he points to George Whitfield, who spits blood when he preaches, and says, I don't, but he does that he was so convinced of the Gospel that he was preaching that it was worthwhile for Ben Franklin, who was not a Christian, to come out and see this guy on fire for Jesus 
and stand by the flame just for a minute. That is the Gospel ringing forth. That is an epicenter of Gospel activity, friends. Let's keep going. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What a beautiful thing. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Not for our sake, for your sake. It's what it is to be a member of a church. To to know who these people are who you're loving and you're giving of yourself not for your sake, but for their sake. Right? Just so you know, People like your pastor Sam, he doesn't do what he's doing for his sake. He does it for your sake. The elders of this church, Mark and Russell and Greg, don't come to long... We do these meetings that are so long sometimes. They're good meetings, but they're very long. They're very long. They're not doing that... They are. These guys aren't doing this for their sake. They are doing it for your sake. You know what kind of men they are among you for your sake. For your sake. Now listen, verse 6. This is important. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. This is important. So you know who we were. And Paul says this really well in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1. These two discipleship verses that I'm going to use today are really great because they're easy to memorize their location because they all use the same number. But 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I actually think this is one of the most important verses for how we live as the church available to us as the people of God. He's not saying, look, I mean, sometimes, you know, you go to a pastor's conference and you realize who's kind of running the conference and you look around and you realize, all the guys have the same haircut as the guy who's on the stage talking and it's weird and creepy. And like, why are all these people dressed the same? This is creepy. I'm not joking. It happens. There's, you know, and I could, honestly, at this point in time, having gone to enough of these, you'd be like, oh, that conference over there. I'd be like, oh, that's this denomination. Oh, that's that group over there. That's those guys over there. Because there's kind of a uniform. And it's creepy. But I won't say any of their names, so I'm not outing anybody. I'm just saying it's creepy. You know, it's a silly thing to try and, and copy my love of Conway Twitty, right? It's a silly thing to copy my love of George Jones. Uh, it's a silly thing to copy uh, my love of any other thing that isn't Jesus. If you're into Conway Twitty, by the way, A, good for you, and B, we should probably talk about that. But, but, that's not what's eternal. That's not what counts. Right? What, what counts is Jesus. Imitate God's work through these men, Paul and Silvanus, Silas, Timothy, and that the thing that they were doing caught in this church and they were copying them in their godliness. They were imitating Paul as he imitated Christ. But it's not just that, right? So they're disciples. They're disciples. They're having this discipleship relationship. And he, and he gives an ex- actual example. Because they received that word that they're convinced of in much affliction. Uh, I think we've talked about that. The Thessalonica is kind of a rough scene uh, in the context in which they received it, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So there's this balance in the life of the Christian person where we're enduring the onslaught of affliction, yet having joy in Christ, saying, you know what, I trust Jesus to vindicate me. I trust Jesus to have my back. I trust Jesus to work this thing all out in the end. And sometimes, by the way, 
that working out in the end is actually working out in the end. Sometimes we actually don't get justified, vindicated in this life, but at the end of the age, Jesus will put everything back the way it's supposed to be, period. There will be justice. There will be justice. But listen, so not only did they become, uh, I keep wanting to say intimidators. That's the wrong word. Imitators of the Lord. Uh, not only that, but listen. So verse 7, so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul is discipling them, and by their life and action as, a, as the Gospel sounds forth, they're discipling other people. Paul is giving of his life and of his example so that they would grow in Christ, and their life and example then helps other people to grow in Christ. This is what Paul has in mind. Again, here's another great verse to memorize at least location. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and 2. He says, Timothy, take what I gave to you and entrust it to faithful men who entrust it to faithful men. Right? This is discipleship. Take what I gave to you, give it to somebody else, 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 and let's go to the ends of the earth until all the nations are reached with the Gospel. Right? It's happening. It's happening even here. Verse 8. This is incredible. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, there's our word, sounded forth, this epicenter. Not only did it go to Macedonia, Restoration Road, not only did it go to the city of Snohomish, and Achaia, and it kind of got up into Lake Stevens and Monroe, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. What? Do you believe that our church has the possibility of having impact in our county, impact in our state, impact in our country, impact on our continent, and impact in our world? I hope so. Because I do. Because I do. Uh, Operation Christmas Child. This is a great example. right? So I have a bunch of friends through connections with another denomination, a school I direct works through. A uh, bunch of Romanian churches here in the States. A bunch of people who, were, uh, who became Christians uh, while the Soviet Union was in charge of uh, uh, Romania and, and Macedonia and those areas there. They would receive these boxes that we get. And my friend Chris, uh, who's a great guy, he spoke at our men's retreat, uh, was at one of these churches, one of these Romanian churches in Tacoma, Golgotha, by, uh, pastored by my friend Paolo, who's amazing. He's there, and he says, oh, you guys are doing, this is just last year, you guys are, oh, you guys are doing Operation Christmas Child. Oh, that's, that's awesome. My kids have always, always done that. Our family's always done that. And these guys standing in a circle say, they get really serious, you know, uh, they're really great. I don't know how, I won't speak for all Romanian people, but everybody I've met from Golgotha Romanian Church are the most passionate, serious dudes I've ever met. And they stop him and they say, no, you listen. He's like, oh, geez, am I going to get a fight? <laughs> Sorry. And this guy begins to tell a story. And this is when you can still send something like chocolate. You can't do that anymore. Is that right, Susan? Or who do I need to talk to about that? No, don't send chocolate. Don't send chocolate. So don't hear this story and do this thing, but you should get a Christmas child box because of this, right? So they sent chocolate in the box because you could do that back then. Kid gets the box, has the chocolate. The chocolate is able to pay the doctor in town because they don't have any money. His dad has had an infection in his leg for months and the doctor takes the chocolate as payment to do the work on the leg. Dad gets better. They get to start eating again. He says, listen, you have no idea how important those things are to us because you all have everything. We have nothing. And his whole family are Christians now because of the love of Christian people. This takes nothing of you to do that. 
grab a box and turn it in and don't forget to bring it. It really honestly takes nothing for you to do that. You can support a church planner in India for $50, $50, support an entire church, the pastor and his family. How much do you pay on your cell phone bill? Wouldn't you rather put some of that money and just get to watch Netflix on your telephone a little less so that someone in India will get saved? Or many someones in India will get saved? We actually can have impact around the globe. The Gospel can go forth because of our love for Jesus, friends. For not only has the Word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia and Snohomish and Monroe and Lake Stevens and Goldbar and Granite Falls and Everett and Stanwood and Vancouver, British Columbia and Hyderabad, India, For not only has the word of the uh, the gospel sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need say nothing. Can you imagine? Not because we want to make our name great, friends. Let's be super duper uber clear on this. This is not so that they'll throw us a conference and uh, write a blog about Restoration Road Church. But imagine you show up in Hyderabad or in Everett or in Stanwood at Roots Church, Three Strand Church. And you say, yeah, I'm from Restoration Road. They say, yeah, we know about you guys. You love Jesus. That'd be amazing. Right? Just even the church in Snohomish. Think about all the Bible-believing churches in Snohomish County. And they said, oh, you're from Snohomish, Washington. Yeah, you. the box says. Imagine. Imagine. For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you. So they already know how it went. Now listen, this is really important. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He just said something extra Old Testament-ish. I just made up that word. And to wait for, the, for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So how you turn from idols and turned to the living and true God. Um, uh, what's interesting here is that Paul is using this phrase, living and true. Uh, this is used throughout the Old Testament again and again and again and again and again and again and again. He only calls God the living God four times in the New Testament. He only calls Him the true God one time in the New Testament, and it's here. He's doing this on purpose, I would argue. He's a very careful writer. He's reaching into the Old Testament and being clear, we're talking about Yahweh. And that these Greek people have turned from their pretend gods to the real God. And he's doing this with a really, really big purpose. One, uh, the climate in Thessalonica. These are mostly Gentile believers, right? So they are people who live in a time and a place that's actually not unlike our own. So it's not weird uh, in Thessalonica to worship the gods of other countries. They're metropolitan. They're coexist bumper sticker people, right? So not only did they worship Dionysus, but they also had uh, temples to Isis and other Egyptian gods there. Uh, and people would just sort of do whatever, you know? Do whatever feels right to you. Obey your thirst. Listen to Sprite, which is horrible advice, by the way. Before Christianity even, the Greeks had this beef with the Jews and the Hebrews. Namely, that they felt like it, they made it too hard to become a Hebrew. 
They made it too hard to be Jewish. They made it too hard to worship Yahweh because you had to go through all these rituals. If you were a man, you had to be circumcised. You had to be baptized. You had to do all this stuff. Baptism was part of the cleansing ritual on your way to being sort of officially Hebrew. right? That's why you hear about God-fearers in the New Testament because there are these Greeks who are like, yeah, I believe in Yahweh and I'm committed to Him, but I'm still working out this whole getting all the way into the deal deal. Right? Um, and so there's both this, this conflict because it's, it's, they're, very, uh, they're very universalistic and yet these Jewish people say, no, you can only worship our God. And it turns out in Thessalonica we have uh, from, from evidence that it seems they were getting extra irritated because people were actually converting to Christianity. And the bar for becoming a Christian in the sense of the outward ritual became much lower. Right, The bar is as low as it gets for Christianity. We don't ask you to come in here and get your life fixed up before you come in, but we are a people who say, we're broken people. If you're broken, there's space for you and the people of God. You're in good company. Come on in. You don't get your life cleaned up and fixed up. You turn to Jesus and He fixes your life and cleans it up. But the, the bar for that is not something like circumcision. Right? And so all these Greeks are coming to see that Jesus is God, and so it's irritating a lot of people. Hence the affliction and hardship. How you turned to God, and it's also probably a message to the Jewish believers who are still thinking, well, maybe they should be circumcised. Maybe they should go through ritual. And he's saying, no, 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 no. He's talking about them like they're the people of God, like the Old Testament people of God. They are the people of God. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And listen, verse 10, and wait for His Son from heaven. You are convinced He will return. You are convinced He will put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Whom? He, that's God the Father, raised from the dead. Very, very controversial item in this time and place. Uh, people didn't, they believed, is, I mean, we, we think, oh, yeah, yeah, they lived 2,000 years ago. They just believed whatever. That's foolishness. That's poppycock. It's balderdash. It's whopper jaw. No, no, when people said, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, if you look in Acts 17, they're like, people don't raise from the dead. That's stupid. Right? This is a bold claim he's making that Jesus rose from the dead. Whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Wrath is a dirty word in 2018. It's actually less dirty than it was about 10 years ago. But wrath means the business end of God's justice. Uh, wrath means people get what they deserve. That's what karma is. You get what you deserve. And you know, usually we have a better assessment of what we deserve when we think about karma. Karma is wrong. I don't want karma. I don't want what I deserve. I want Jesus. Give me Jesus and His grace and His mercy. But the reality is that Jesus has delivered us from the wrath to come. If Jesus has not paid the price for your sins, you will have to. And Jesus gives us life and life in abundance. But there are these people who have turned. And let's look at the power of these phrases. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 21. We'll skip the other one, guys, in the back. This is a fulfillment of a promise. Isaiah 21.19 says this, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Here's what you need to know about Egypt. Egypt and the Bible are pretty much always the bad guys. They are the empire. They are the first order. They are whatever thing, uh, you know, whatever thing you might want to put in there. They are the bad guys. My dad was known in the 1980s. I have this memory once at the McDonald's specifically when they switched from chocolate vanilla swirl cones to orange sorbet swirl cones. 
He ordered chocolate vanilla squirrel cone, and they informed him of this information, and he said, communists! And I didn't know what a communist was, but I knew they were the bad guys, apparently, because <laughs> they're the ones ruining our ice cream. <laughs> uh, we are in, yeah, that would be helpful, wouldn't it? Isaiah 19, verse 19, uh, 19, 19. Thank you. Someone's on it. Thank you, Noel. <laughs> yeah, I won't. I, you know, that's really the way you get things done around here. You shame people. You yell. And that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Okay. Well, you know, alright, that's weird. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. Another marker of the God of the Bible. Those things don't belong in Egypt. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they, that's the bad guys, the Egyptians, when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender. Wait, these are the, these are the enemy. What do you mean He's going to send a Savior and a Defender? And deliver them. Why are they going to get delivered? I mean, these are the questions you should be asking as you're reading this. Uh, 21, And know the Lord in that day and worship and sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. They're going to be the people of God. The bad guys are going to be the people of God. That's weird. Verse 22, And the Lord will strike Egypt, strike, striking and healing, and they will return. There's our kind of turning language. And He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Verse 23, And in that day there will be a highway from Egypt which is in, uh, if Israel's here, it's stage left, right? It's this way. So it's eastward, westward of Egypt, or westward of, westward of land. And then Assyria is on the other side, so it's eastward of land. From Egypt to Assyria, the other bad guys. Wait, what? The bad guys over here and the bad guys over here are going to get a savior? What are you talking about? Those are enemies. You should crush them. You should make them pay. Well, someone's going to pay. Someone always has to pay. And his name is Jesus. And he has paid the price for their sins to make them his people. And Assyria will come into Egypt. And Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So if you're standing in Israel and you're walking, Assyria and Egypt are about as far as you go. You know, Alexander the Great got to India and thought he had conquered the world. There's a lot more world past India, right? North America, South America, onward and onward. But the image here is that the, the people of the world, not just the people of Israel, are going to turn from their pretend gods and turn to God. And I think Paul is borrowing from that and saying, look, it's happening. The promises of God are coming to fruition. They are becoming the people of God by turning from their pretend gods and turning to the real God. And because of these things, they become an epicenter from the Gospel and a people that the Gospel sounds forth from. Now, what I want us to do is to really quickly do a little self-assessment as we look through the features that we saw of this people. And, and we'll talk about them. And what I want you to do is I want you to just think about them. And I want you to examine your life in our church. Because my hope for us is that as much as we are a people that the Gospel is going forth from, that we would be a people that the Gospel will go forth evermore. And more and more. And in an increasing way. And so when I do this, we need to be really careful. This is an invitation. Right? This is an invitation, not a condemnation. Right? Right? Uh, shaming doesn't actually really work, right? 
Because if I get up here and actually shame you about the things we're about to talk about, you say, you know, I should be more gospel-centered, I should be more Holy Spirit-filled or whatever, and you leave here feeling bad, and then you go to lunch, and you forget about feeling bad, and you move on with the rest of your life. Right? Ever done that in a sermon? I have. Right? You ever read that great theology book, and you're like, oh, I feel so bad. I should get involved in missions. Oh, lunchtime. (laughs) Right? You read John Piper. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Yes! Wait, there's a Seahawks game on. Never mind. Was that shaming? No, I'm just kidding. Go on mission to your Seahawks game. You know Seahawks fans who don't know Jesus. It is a great mission field. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Don't waste your Seahawks game. Okay, so what I want us to do then is a self-assessment. This is an invitation, not a condemnation. Don't feel bad. You're actually indicted and invited into this thing. You are the people of God. These things are for you. And where they're not happening in your life, I want you to seek after them because God's not trying to hide them from you. Number one, these were a gospel, word-centered people. They heard and they believed. And when I say believed, I don't just mean that you say, you know, check, I love Jesus, great. Now I'm going to go do something else. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead and gave His life for you, how should that actually change the rest of your life? What should that do for Monday morning? Do you you believe the Word in such a way that's impacting your life? You're giving of yourself to help other people follow Jesus. You're giving of yourself to help those in need. You're giving of yourself to help those who have never heard the Gospel. You're sacrificing so that the Gospel would go forth because you really actually believe the thing with some fire, grit, and conviction. Number two, operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. These people are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians tells us, or really warns us or asks us, you who began in the Spirit, are you going to finish this thing in the flesh? You who began this thing with utter dependence on Jesus, you cried out to Him. You said, Jesus, I can't live without You. I need You to save me. I need You to move in my life. And then you say, Jesus, I'm going to do the rest of it on my own. Thank You. Because the reality is you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian person. This is what we believe. Because you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, well, friends, if you weren't, that means that there's only so much the Lord could ask of you, right? If you didn't have help from God, He would have to look at your life and say, you are a frail human being and I can only ask so much of you. The reality is He said, I am your God. I am going to help you. I'm going to send you my Spirit. I'm going to empower you. At times, I'm going to fill you with the Spirit. I'm going to move in your life. I will be with you always to the ends of the earth. All authority has been given to me. So go therefore and make disciples. Well, friends, if He is empowering you, then there's no limit of what He can actually ask you to do. And in fact, if He's empowering us, there's no limit, by the way, of what we can ask Him to do through us. The answer is not always yes. He's working things out for His purposes and His will. But there's literally no limit to the things that you can ask Him to do. And honestly, there's no limit to the things He can ask you to do either. Three, full conviction. Fully convinced. Do you believe He rose from the dead? Enough that you're willing to talk about it and tell people about it and make it the center of your Christian friendships and your non-Christian friendships and your work relationships and your you know, dog park relationships, right? Are you willing to look for those Gospel bridges because you're fully convinced that He's who He says He is? We need to be in, in, imitators. I was going to do it. Intimidators. 
We're trying to imitate Christ. This is the core of discipleship. The core of discipleship is growing like in Christ-likeness. Are you growing in Christ-likeness? Are there people helping you to grow in Christ-likeness? Are you helping other people to grow in Christ-likeness? Number five, are you striking the balance between joy and affliction? If you step out in faith, there will be suffering. We don't get off the hook. If you want to follow Jesus, you will suffer. If I can be really honest with you, you will suffer. But there is joy and as much as you suffer, it will not be outweighed by the joy we have in following Jesus and doing the things He says He is. Do you look at your own comfort and say, I would do those things for Jesus, but I think it's a little too uncomfortable. No, thank you. Are you willing to say, I don't care how uncomfortable it makes me. Jesus is my joy. Jesus is my reward. Number six, have you turned from idols to Jesus? It's easy to pick on the guy who's guilty of sexual morality or the person who's got substance abuse problems, but what are the things that love you love? What are the things that drive your life? What are the things that you've put at the center of your life? What are the things that if they went away today, you'd freak out and you wouldn't know what to do? I mean, man, we can pick on all kinds of people, but it's really easy to pick on other people rather than looking at ourselves and looking in the mirror and saying, man, I really love... Man, frankly, some of y'all... I don't know. I have to do this, right? Some of y'all love online shopping a lot, right? Some of you are obsessed with the midterm elections and can't stop reading them and put your phone down and look at your kids in the eye. There are things that are driving your life that only you and Jesus can deal with. Talk to Him about it. Are you willing to lay down your life to help other people follow Jesus? Do you love your comfort or do you love other people? Number seven, are you waiting for Jesus? If He came ripping through the sky right now, would you joyfully receive Him? Would you consider Jesus ripping through the sky being the greatest thing you've ever seen in the greatest day of your life? Or are you saying to yourself, I just like 10 more years here on earth? I think he might come in my lifetime, but could you just wait until I see my grandkids? Could you wait until I accomplish this thing, until I climb this mountain or visit this river? Or as he rips through the sky, do you say, Jesus, thank you, thank you? It's time. Are you waiting for him or are you waiting for something else? I love you guys. This is exciting stuff. I am confident in your love of Christ and that this is an epicenter of the Gospel. It is my pleasure and my privilege to preach for you today. If you are not here today and you are not a Christian, we love you. We are so glad you're here. We just want you to know Jesus. We want Him to know, the way, know Him the way we know Him. We want you to love Him the way we love Him and we want you to know that He's real and He'll forgive you for your sins and He'll give you life and that life starts right now. And if you're in here today and you are a Christian, I read those seven things and you said, yeah, none of those actually resonate with me in any shape or form or not very much. What needs to change in your life? What are you going to give up? Or what, what sacrifices are you willing to make to say, get this crud out of my life so I can get more of Jesus? And if you're in here today and you're saying, yes, I mean, not perfectly, but yes, yes, I love Jesus. And yes, this is what I'm into. And yes, I want to do these things. How are you going to give of yourself to help other people follow Jesus? Where are you going to go in the world? Maybe you're going to Hyderabad, India. Maybe you're going to downtown Everett. There is need everywhere on this planet. Maybe it's just enough to be here in Snohomish and love our neighbors really well. And maybe it's enough to give of yourself to help the people you're sitting to, next to right now love Jesus more. Let's pray.